0: Consummate Athlete seeks health, community, and adventure through movement.
1: And here on the podcast, longtime endurance coach and kinesiologist Peter Glassford and author and cycling coach Molly Herford are helping you lead your best active, adventurous life.
0: Every week, we talk with professional athletes, health and fitness experts, and of course, real-life consummate athletes.
1: We're excited to have you along for the ride. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast. Peter, how's it going?
0: It's going well. Uh, I have just restarted my uh, my endeavors to train on my bicycle indoors. It is December, so I got through my November no riding inside challenge, uh, and I am I am struggling with this riding inside.
1: Did you tell anyone about this challenge?
0: Um, this year I didn't really, you know, advertise it, quote unquote. In past years, I have like mentioned it and done like an Instagram of like, oh, it's miserable out here. Look at me. But yeah, this year it was just sort of a. A quiet thing. I think I have mentioned it in one or two of our intros, actually, maybe uh, just that I was doing that. But yeah, I don't know. I just try and it's a long winter in, in Canada, usually right in this one, especially because we, we, we aren't going to escape to to Spain or any tropical locale.
1: Yes, it's true. It is It is definitely weird kind of settling into the, the cold weather and realizing that, yeah, there isn't going to be a, a respite for it. But you know what? It's not bad.
0: Well, I just heard, I didn't tell you this, but I just uh, got an invite to join the trail team for the local like fat bike uh, trail grooming crew. So I get to hopefully, well, <laughs> assuming I pass the driving test, uh, navigate this like snow machine that uh, grooms the trails. And then also there's a snowshoe. I, I suspect they just want me to walk on and pound things down with snowshoes and probably won't let me drive anything. But
1: That's like your favorite kind of cross training.
0: Yeah, no, it's good. It should be exciting. So
1: Yes, and actually, so before we get into today's, today's episode, uh, we do kind of want to point out that cross training is still a perfectly viable, excellent, important option in the winter, despite the fact that we're talking all about indoor training today.
0: Yeah. I mean, people can do what they like. And I think uh, we have Jim Rutberg on uh, today talking about this. this is the co-author or, or he is, the, uh, how am I saying this? He's Joe Friel's co-author. Or he is Joe Friel is his co-author on the book Ride Inside, which I think was very timely. There's a great story of how that book came together. Joe's been working on it lots of years, but, you know, sort of came in this year where riding inside was was forced upon many of us and, and became more attractive in, in a lot of different ways. So uh, it's well-timed and I think answers a lot of, of these questions that come up when you start trying to pedal a bicycle in your living room.
1: Yeah. So definitely, you know, if you are interested in riding inside, then it's a super great option to stay bike fit, you know, during the, the winter season, but definitely don't forget the importance of getting outside, whether it's shoveling the driveway, getting out for walks, etc. Just just to mix it up a little bit.
0: Yeah. And it's odd, you know, some of the stuff I, I always say, I feel like I'm defending cross training half the time, but, uh, I, you know, we do, we still, as I say, I'm, I'm riding indoors. Like it's, it is part of the sport and preparing for that. So we do use that tool. I'm fond of my, my, you know, it's the batting cage. It's not baseball. Uh, It's not the thing, right? It's the thing that lets us get repetitions and a certain type of things. But uh, yeah, the idea of jumping on and off the bike is always novel, I find. You know, it's something that I just sort of like throw that out there. And it's, you know, you can get off and do some core or, you know, some people have a treadmill, they can do some even just walking uphill on a treadmill, or or as you say, go out and shovel snow if you have snow to move and and then come back in and ride some more, right? Uh, And in a lot of ways, it's not that much different than you know, you're going to stop at the trailhead and talk to people or go down a downhill on your mountain bike or stop at the coffee shop, right? Like there's lots of pauses usually in cycling. Uh, so, right. Yeah. So mix it up. That's, right. that's our tip, I guess.
1: Yes. And before we get into the episode, just a reminder, we have a bunch of consummate athlete gift guides up on the website. It's funny. I actually just posted a picture a couple of days ago of the North Face booties that I have that I use for post run. So after really chilly runs, they're just these like slippery booties that I, I put on and they're the greatest thing on earth. They're in our gift guide. But when I posted them, I had like 10 people. like, Oh my gosh, I either need these or I have these and they're the greatest things ever. So that's the kind of excellent options that you find in the consummate athlete gift guides.
0: Yeah, it strikes me as more of a want than a need, but...
1: But that makes it a perfect present, <laughs> I guess. We're... So a lot of the gift guides, I'm gonna like throw this out there. I made sort of thinking about. I hate when people think, "Oh, you're a runner, you're a cyclist." So you I'm mean... gonna, I'm gonna get you running shoes or a worse, bike.
0: Yes, I hate when people buy me bicycles. Hate when people yeah. buy <laughs> me bicycles.
1: You know what I mean? Right. You're just being annoying. Right. Uh, or they get you like the bike themed stuff where it's just like everything is like bike print or bike sculpture or fair like yeah. cute bike stuff sure. so these are what i think of as practical gifts for
0: they are warm you brought them camping and i didn't have a second set of shoes which was a newbie i would i would have enjoyed those wants it actually was borderline a need on on that day so
1: yeah exactly ha huh. uh, anyway we also kick off this conversation with jim rutberg by just kind of talking about uh, just to get back to indoor training, the importance of indoor training in terms of getting more people excited about bikes and sort of just the idea that it's, you know, whether you're talking about someone who's coming from spin class and getting onto an indoor trainer or, you know, you're talking about someone who's new to cycling, getting on an indoor trainer or, you know, it's it's someone who's been riding for years and is getting on an indoor trainer just to do something in the off season.
0: Yeah, I think it too quickly. Uh, and I'm guilty of this, you know, it becomes this like ego battle of like, I only ride indoors or or outdoors or Zwift this or whatever. But Jim starts with a great point that, you know, in a lot of ways, this is getting a lot of people involved in cycling and exercising that maybe wouldn't have
2: otherwise.
1: Exactly. All right. Well, let's let Jim speak for himself. Enjoy this conversation with Jim Rufford.
2: Whether it's indoors or or outdoors, etc. And what's going on with fitness right now, my whole sort of premise has always been the more we can get people engaged and involved and, and, and lower the barriers to entry, the better it's going to be for everyone in the long run. So yes, this is about indoor cycling and maybe about competition and maybe about e-racing, but at the end of the day, if we can just get more people to be more active more frequently, we're all going to win.
0: Well, I think that's how we have to start this thing. Is, yeah, is on seriously. that note, what a
2: positive note for sure.
0: And at, you're seeing that a little bit now with the you know people who are taking up cycling, as you say, indoors, outdoors, fitness. Otherwise, uh, you know, almost like it, it, we have to keep battling this idea of like we have to be welcoming to these new people. You know, for the sake of the industry, for the sake of the sport, for new friends. Um, you you do you find that it's it's tough with indoor cycling in in that respect, like from a social perspective, or or what are you finding? Uh, with the new cyclists.
2: Uh no, not at all. I think that there's um you know you still end up with a little bit of that coffee shop um uh group ride mentality at uh, some places where people are a little bit standoffish or they'll criticize somebody for uh you know not knowing how to clip in or something like that. But overall, because you have such a large population, and a large group of people being able to interact together the positive voices outweigh the critics and the skeptics or the um you know sort of snobby voices to such an extent that they pretty much disappear um it, it I've been on some of the um the Peloton Facebook groups and those are somewhat funny in, in the sense of coming from a strong cycling background you forget some of the questions that people are going to ask you forget the fact that people don't understand how cleats work. You forget the fact that people don't understand that you have to have to screw pedals in a little bit more tightly so they don't fall out. Things along those lines, and and you just because we've been in in that industry for so long, we forget that what it is really like to be that that new to it.
0: What a great point. Yeah, it's 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 tough to remember. You know, in coaching, I'm always you know when you have new clients start right. It's hard to step back with anything and say, you know, what would I be asking if I were just starting training, let alone into coaching or something like that? So I guess it's the same if someone's starting into indoor cycling or outdoor cycling.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've seen that with um, the bike fit, especially when people are getting uh, Pelotons or new smart bikes, or putting their bikes on trainers um, for the first time and you know, they'll show a picture of themselves on the bike or something. And some of us who've been around it for a long time look at it and go, oh God, that doesn't look good. Um, but they don't, you know, they're, they're new to it. They don't necessarily know about it. And you're seeing now uh, sort of video or virtual bike fits occurring for Peloton users, for Zwift users, um, and for all of the other indoor um, communities.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I've, I've done a few of these for clients as well because they can't get to you know, they're, they're maybe having knee pain. I'm a kinesiologist as well. So I do a little bit of that usually. Um, but yeah, it's this whole new world of virtual everything. Uh, we did have, you know, that's a great segue. I think we had a, a lot of the questions we got on Twitter ended up being around sort of the setup, the bike fit, the, you know, different things in that. I know the book, uh, How to Ride Inside uh, also goes into that. Uh, so do you want to start maybe just with some, some of these uh, we'll call them basic questions, but first questions. As far as you know, we're setting. We've got our our new smart trainer, and we're setting it up. Like, what what are some first steps in your mind, or, or questions that even we should be asking?
2: Well, the the question that because I saw the Twitter feed as well. The question that came up, I thought was a really good one. It was a person who asked if they should change their bike fit, change their saddle height, saddle position, going from outdoors to indoors because they felt like they needed to lower their saddle. I think it was six to eight millimeters in order to feel comfortable indoors. And I thought about it more and more and more. And I thought, I think that the number one, no, I don't think you should have to do that. And number two, I think the reason that they are, that people want to do that or, or feel like they should do that has to do with the way we pedal indoors and outdoors. When you are riding outdoors, the bike is oscillating underneath you. There's a sway to the bike and your body stays relatively still. When the bike is being um, is held firm, whether it's your bike on an indoor trainer or a smart bike, the bike itself can't can't swing or sway underneath you. So your body has to swing or sway on top of it. Some people just pedal differently than others when they're outdoors, and you've been behind people on uh, outdoors who seem to sway in the saddle a bit, their hips rock a little bit more than others. They kind of move on the saddle side to side as they pedal. They may not really notice it all that much because they've been doing it for so long. When you put that person on a fixed bike indoors, all of a sudden it feels uncomfortable now because the bike isn't able to move underneath them the same way. It feels like the saddle's too high.
0: Yeah, it was an interesting question. Joe sort of asked why, and I don't know if we ever got, uh, Questions back or not? Because I was sort of curious. Like, was it pain that required? It was a substantial seat height change. Yeah, uh, I, I thought like eight mils, uh, which to me, like, I'm I'm a big believer. My bias is that like probably day to day you could adjust it if you really wanted like a mil, like one or two millimeters, uh if you were really really picky about that sort of stuff. And everyone sort of you know you'll have people who are really. I tend to be someone who's very flexible. Like I can really ride anything and have a big, I guess you could call it fit window. Mm-hmm. And some people don't have as big a a flexibility or a fit window, I guess. But I was like, that's a lot. Um, so I think you're on to something there. I guess my, the one question I was going to put up for debate was like, do you, how do you stand as far as bike fitting, you know, mountain bike versus cross versus road? Like, would you see a, a difference in saddle height there?
2: Um, in, in yes and no, but I think a lot of it, it comes down to, it's a saddle height difference based on the stack height of the pedal and the shoe. So um the or the crank length you know a lot of people ride 175s on the mountain bike and 1725s on on hmm. road or maybe their triathlon bike has a different crank length um or the riding mountain bike shoes and pedals on one versus the other uh personally I I am not like you in the sense that I am not very um
0: your fit window small my fit window is very
2: very small to the point where my friends um joke about it to the point because I I'm that guy that it's like the princess in the pea. like if anything's out of place <laughs> I'm really bothered um and so I actually went the opposite way I have all the same pedals and shoes I only wear mountain bike shoes and I, I don't know I ride mountain bike pedals on all of the bikes so oh, that we're, i wear totally, oh, yeah. the same we're so you're,
0: you're a man after my own heart that, yeah. yeah that's like my my campaign to eliminate road shoes
2: yeah because I just that way I don't have to think about anything being different i can memorize a seat height and a setback or whatever it is and just leave it because i'll just swap the pedals and be good so there's that and then
0: what was my other thought on that was sort of i wondered if the the gentleman uh who put this out there i I wondered you know if, if it was a very like road oriented fit where it was like very extreme with the bar height if maybe he'd end up with maybe like a flexibility, as you say, maybe aggravated by not standing or, or not having that side to side motion where it might be something where like the handlebar heights really influencing a, a comfortable position.
2: Um, I, I thought would, about that would, too, but the problem yeah. there would be that they're all relative. So the saddle height to the pedal uh, is, the, is right. the exact same, regardless of the height of the axles. And if so, the if the front axle is elevated or or lower because of the trainer, it's still all relative. The person may be a little bit leaned forward, a little bit leaned back, but that would be the same as going uphill or downhill. There's not a... So I don't think that could necessarily be it, but I still think that what, especially you look at some of the people's like time trial positions from the elite standpoint or their triathlon positions um, where they're a, a more extreme saddle height because they're trying to optimize power output You know, one of the things that, uh, that Joe talks a lot about is for triathletes going indoors. One of the big things that they have to be very, very careful of is maintaining their aerodynamic position, even indoors on the trainer, because it's tempting indoors to sit up into a non-aero position because you can generate more power frequently. Your aero position is usually not your most powerful body position on the bike, so if you're doing workouts in this in the most powerful position indoors, that is not your triathlon position outdoors. Then when you get outdoors, you're not going to have all that power. So his uh, advice and everything has been to make sure that riders are spending or not letting the efforts indoors get to the point where they're rising out of their aero position um, because they needed that to be as as sport specific as possible
0: yeah and maybe missing that opportunity where safety isn't even a concern right
2: yeah i think honestly that that's one of the biggest benefits of indoor cycling uh for for a goal oriented athlete is and because all, and people too will also say well God, i can do i can do either I can, I can do more power sometimes indoors i can do better intervals part of it is that you're not reserving any brain power mm-hmm. motivation anything to staying upright or to avoiding getting hit by a car or anything else. Right. People can stare at their stem, put their head down, thrash back and forth, and put every last ounce into the bike until the end of the interval. And you really can't necessarily do that outdoors. Even if you think you're going all out, it's a relative. there's a relative difference. There's all out outdoors and there's all out indoors.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah I like to say that it's like the batting cage it's not baseball right um and that sort of fits with that right is like there's an advantage to it it's not that it's bad but it's it's not the thing right there's actually uh, like,
2: a, an article on uh sticky bottle uh today it was a uh, uh that talked about whether or not um oh actually sorry that was a different article there was an article i uh, read a a little while back about whether or not you could somebody could train indoors for time trials and would they be better or worse outdoors and the conclusion of the whole thing was your fitness may get better but the the lack of variables or that by removing so many of the variables that you get outdoors you end up essentially overconfident in your abilities uh when you go outdoors like oh i, I know i can hold this power i know i can do this time and then you get into an actual outdoor event and realize that you didn't remember about the wind and the things you have to look at and all of those things and, they, and all those little things eat away at that power output and eat away at that performance.
0: Yeah. Let alone like safety, I guess, would be the other thing that would, would come to people's minds. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah. Okay. Let
0: me ask a couple of questions here. Again, if we think of like beginners or people starting into, or, or, you know, the questions we should be asking if we're maybe more novices and or, or looking more seriously at, you know, uh, pandemic indoor training and such. Uh, so let's think about like mistakes around cooling, uh, you know, indoors, again, no fan, you know, indoors temperatures tend to be, you know, climate controlled. Like what, what are the mistakes people make with cooling?
2: <laughs> Not enough fans. I mean, they, if one fan is great, three is better. Um, the, I, I think people miss on miss That one misconception is that they can, they can get airflow that is similar to outdoors. And the, the airflow is generally so much less that the the, the power of, of um, evaporative cooling really does go down. So the, um, the, inv- the immediate environment around somebody heats up pretty quickly. And then you end up with, you know, one of the things that I like to tell people is that the puddle of sweat underneath you is a missed opportunity. All of that sweat would have been better off evaporating off your skin or off your clothing. It would have carried away more heat than it does by sitting on the ground.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great way. I, I usually say, like, and if people are, like, using a towel, right? Like, you don't use a towel outside. Mm-hmm. So so it, it's fine, but for everyone who's, you know, trying to set their best FTP, you know, records on Zwift or whatever they're doing, right? Like, that is its lost opportunity as far as performance, too, right? Like, you're basically in some sort of, like, high high humidity environment that you're.
1: I was just going to say maybe a dehumidifier in addition to the fans just really get all the machines going here
2: yeah I think a lot of it is just getting as, as again getting airflow because one of the studies that they've did um they on thermal strain so not even core temperature but just the perception of thermal strain if you put um uh menthol on some uh, on someone's face and you blow a fan at it, they get a cooling sensation. And even though their core temperatures rose the same way that somebody without menthol did, uh, those individuals were able to, they had a longer time to exhaustion um, in, a, in a simulated time trial. So even if you can, yeah, I'm not necessarily recommending that people slather themselves with menthol to ride indoors, but the point being that the sensation or the perception of how hot it is around you is potentially going to affect especially things like e racing where the where the um effort level is so high it's internal motivation and your ability to push yourself further and if you are overheating at the same time that motivation just d- disappears
0: yeah and it sounds like it, it it's such a obvious thing but i think like you say like you you sort of joked about three fans but you're not really joking right like oh i'm not joking at all not only not only
2: am i not joking about the three fans but you have to be in my mind you have to be careful about even where you're putting them one Mm -hmm. towards your upper body one towards the torso and lower body from the front and then one on the one on your back and it's the one on your back that um people usually don't use
0: no one does that.
2: Right.
1: No, actually that's not true. When we interviewed Tim Rugg, who did the Oh, uh, he wrote Pride...
0: Across America virtually. So oh, Tim Rugg.
1: Yeah. He had he had an excellent family. So he setup. he did
0: the research. He he read yeah. he read the book. Um okay, what about fueling? You know, again, it seems obvious to me. I always say, like, you know, how would you do this outdoors? But it, it's people often indoors just for something they like stop eating, you know, they, they won't eat anything. They'll Let's eat.
1: also point out that most people are not optimal at eating outdoors anyway.
0: Wow. possibly yeah so what what do you see with that jim um
2: for the most part you know, if if people are riding relatively short indoors because I, I think that yes we all know folks who are doing three four five hour plus indoor rides but i don't know that those are the majority of people i think that's a relatively small vocal minority for sure um for sure. i think that especially when you look at more towards the beginners or the people who are are using indoor cycling to supplement outdoor and doing a little bit of both they're riding 60 to 90 minutes um and we know even from outdoors within that window you really don't need all that much if any exogenous carbohydrate to fuel performance you 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 have as long as you're starting those workouts with full glycogen uh stores you're you have enough energy on board to get through that workout well and when you look at e-racing and things that are very high intensity, you don't really feel like eating anyhow. Um, so I think it's positive that people don't really need to either. Um, you know, somebody mentioned to me once the, the what about the carbohydrate mouth rinse? I'm like, well, that works great, except I don't think you want to do it in your living room. Um, you know, so the, I think when you're going longer, yes, some, some carbohydrate feeding makes sense. But if you're doing a, sh- a one hour um or 75 minute indoor interval workout or an e-race i think hydration and maybe some electrolytes are the th- are the main focus um the you're going to finish that ride before you really need that any any actual calories sure no no what uh, if hang
1: on i'm just actually picturing like one of those wine spit things that you have <laughs> for like a a wine tasting you could. in that case the mouth rinse might work
2: performance enhancing <laughs> Your, anybody with a family is not going to, your family's going to look at you like you're utterly bizarre. The
0: the, the trainer <laughs> spittoon? Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, what about, uh, I guess, like a follow-up to that one, it would be, you know, someone's waking up at five in the morning. I, someone just told me there recently, a listener, actually, I don't know if he will be listening or not. I assume he will, but, um, you know, they're waking up at 5 a.m. to do like a, a team time trial or something on Zwift. Um so in that case, would you you know, could we grab like a banana or something? Oh, yeah. What do you think?
2: You're yeah, saying? I mean, but same thing as when people ride, you know, early mornings uh on you know, as they have been for a long time. Mostly you right. just need the hit of blood glucose. You're you're sure. still your your muscle glycogen is is all there. Um it's just a matter of being able to have enough blood glucose that you don't get lightheaded and feel like garbage. Right. Right.
0: Cool. All right. Uh, what else do people miss uh, when they're trying to get the most out of their trainer and spin bikes? I've taken this right from from the book. Uh, what are people missing? Is there anything beyond those, like common trappings?
2: Um, I think one of the things that I've noticed, especially as people f- post photos of their pain caves and things like that, is I'm always amazed at the height of the screens. Um, I th- really think that people benefit from Positioning the screen in the same, essentially the same line of sight that they would use out on the road. When you're out on the road, you hopefully aren't sitting up like a kite and looking straight ahead or up. Um, But a lot of the screens that I see are people who they have them elevated. Um, And again, I think it can be comfortable to ride like that because there's no aerodynamic drag, et cetera. So why not sit up and pedal at maximum power? But that doesn't necessarily isn't going to translate all that well when you do want to go outdoors.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if that's maybe we'll we'll find some disagreement there. I'm not sure. The one there was actually a follow up to our initial question we talked about today with the the position and the bike fit, which I thought was an interesting. I don't know if it's necessarily going to help the gentleman with the six to eight mils of seat drop. Mm -hmm. Um, But the idea of the difference is that like a lot of people are running phones or laptops that are like really making them hunch over and look down. Maybe. So I he his thought was that like usually we're looking ahead in cycling, but you're saying that like maybe the screen's like even higher than looking ahead, like as if we were doing you know riding on the road.
1: Well, a lot Mm -hmm. of people have like wall mount TVs and stuff like that,
0: right? Yeah. So is that what you're like? It's too high, like exactly. No, I think a lot of
2: them are 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 too high. Where the person, when you look at them, say you're doing one of those virtual bike fits or something like that, you look at their head position. And they're craning their neck, which then is raising their shoulders, which is a straight length, uh, straightening their arms. They're sitting way further up than they mm-hmm. would be otherwise, um, because they're just trying to see the screen.
0: yeah, it's almost like setting up your virtual office, right and uh, it may be aggravated now because everyone's doing these like weird home offices, mm-hmm. you know sitting you know working in different places in the house. so you almost wonder if the it's extra important that that bike setup sort of is ergonomic, if you will.
2: Yeah, it could because so one of the things that we've mentioned in the book, and I think that is important, is that not everyone is going to go from indoors to outdoors. We're going to see a, a growing number of people who only ride indoors, and there's nothing wrong with that. And we also have to accept the fact that these two, uh, that indoor cycling is no longer the bad alternative to riding outdoors. It is a an entity or a a discipline unto itself. Uh, we certainly see that in in the in e racing. Some riders are s- successful indoors, are not all that successful outdoors, and vice versa. Um, so the we have to be a little bit careful saying that you have to mimic your outdoor position indoors, because for some of these people, there is no outdoor position, and they can ride however they want to indoors uh, because they're really going to stay there. It's the people who are going to uh, whose main goal it is to ride and and do events and whether they're competitive events or not, um, outdoors, those folks I think would benefit most from, um, keeping their outdoor position and ergonomics in mind when they are setting up their indoor environment.
0: I think that's a great point. Yeah. I think for, especially for coaches or anyone designing stuff, right. Is to make sure you're asking that question of like, what is the actual goal at the end of this?
2: Yeah. Um, And I also, I do think too, I think you probably have used this methodology as well, is the indoor, an indoor bike and and especially the new smart bikes are great tools for experimenting with new positions that you can, if, if you're fortunate enough to have two bikes and one of them can be sort of the trainer bike and one is your outdoor bike, you can see what happens when you put on a different width handlebar you can see what happens if you raise and lower the bars rotate the handlebars to move the brake hoods things along those lines or try a new triathlon position or time trial position and see whether or not you can adapt to it whether it's comfortable whether it's going to work on a on the indoor bike and not have to mess with your outdoor bike until you've come to the conclusion that it's the thing you want to do
0: yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like it's almost like a little fit bike or like a wind tunnel. Mm-hmm. Um, and cer- certainly the time trial, as I've worked with, uh, sort of use it as that sort of time, as you say, training the position, but then also maybe tweaking it here and there.
2: Yeah. And one of the things that Joe's brought up that, you know, when people ask us about what do we foresee indoor cycling, uh, especially with the apps and the technologies, what, what do we foresee happening in the future? One of the things that he always points out is that he thinks that there's going to we're going to get to a point where the... Coefficient of drag is not a standardized um, uh, value based on your height or your weight or, or things like that. But it's there's the apps are going to f- get to the point where they'll look at your position and see whether or not you're sitting up or not, um, and be able to adjust accordingly in the games or in the uh, in your performance online.
0: Yeah, and I guess that's that's like getting into that competition almost of how they're going to uh i don't want to compare it to doping so i won't but they're almost going to have to figure out a way to standardize things right if if it's going to get increasingly competitive um
2: yeah i mean i think they're definitely yeah they're 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 taking good steps in that sense i mean it's so new that they're i think i think that there are a lot of um people who sort of inadvertently cheat when it comes to erasing or, um, their performances in, in some of the virtual platforms. For instance, it's really easy to put in the goal, your goal weight, as opposed to your current weight. Um, like, yeah, I'd really like to be 150 pounds, but I'm actually 160. So, you know, they're putting in their, their hoped for weight as opposed to maybe their actual weight. Um, and then there's calibration issues and, and things along those lines. But I, I guess I'm an optimist in thinking that there are more inadvertent errors than there are people who care enough about their performance in an e-race that they're where there's no prizes and, and they're amateur races, et cetera, that they're gonna manipulate the data just to go move up on a leaderboard.
0: Sure, sure the idea of training you know i i really like cross training that's a big part of what we do um and so i got into a discussion there a week or two ago on on twitter uh just sort of looking at we were talking about cross training and specificity versus being sort of more general and sort of the base season and then somehow e racing came up and i was like well i think you still need to if you're going to race like i think that's still racing like you need to be specific with that um What are your thoughts on that? Like, do do you see that coming or or have you seen that uh, as far as like people like being specific, like building towards like a peak, you know, e-race?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that the the UCI World Championships for e-sport is coming up, I think, relatively soon. So I think definitely there, if you're competing in that, you're going to be training specifically to peak for it. Um, I think in general... um, in the future, I have a, my gut tells me that we're going to have teams that pro teams that have an outdoor team and an indoor team um, because I, we've already started to see some racers who excel outdoors who don't quite have the same performance indoors and vice versa. There are some guys and, and gals who are excelling in e-racing and if you put them in the peloton, they're going to get spit out the back um, because the it's one thing to produce the power and it's another thing to have the savvy and the drafting capabilities and understand where you need to be in the peloton and when to attack you on um, e-racing for instance unless it's a live stream you can't look at the person next to you and tell whether they're on the ropes or not they're producing five watts per kilogram but you have no idea whether they're at the end of their uh, ability to do that and you just have to press them again or whether they're doing that sustainably. So there's, there are some differences in how people, um, race indoors and outdoors, and then some people are just better at it than others. And, um, so I think that there, we're going to get to a point, especially because the sponsors and the marketing and everything else, those riders are going to have value. The indoor riders are going to have value, um, and teams are going to recognize that they might need a, an outdoor team and an indoor team.
0: Yeah, and I mean we've seen that like it's completely out of my realm of I would say almost interest, but <laughs> the world of like esports is huge, right? Like there's all this stuff about uh, you know the investment as far as NFL versus all these esports of like watching people play video games. So while I find it crazy, it's already here, right? Like it's in other sports. So the question is, as you say, like when, when, and how long till we have like cycling races that people are watching? I think we're already there, but like on a scale that it's interesting to sponsors.
2: Yeah. And I think that there's, as you said, I think we're, we're already there and it's just in its infancy. And um, the, when you look at the cost and the hassle and the permitting and everything else that goes into a major outdoor event um, that you can eliminate a lot of that cost structure and infrastructure by going indoors I think you're going to start to see that that promoters as well as teams and everybody else are going to see that there's a compelling business model for incorporating esports into cycling.
0: Sure. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And then all of a sudden, like the cash, like prizing is easier to come up with when you don't have to deal with liability. And as you say, permitting and yeah, yeah, you can see how the business comes together if people are willing to do it. Um, Yeah. And you can also,
2: you can start to do pro-am events that you would never be able to do in real, real time. You know, you want to ride ride the Tour de France. Right. Right. I mean, you want to ride a a, a stage of the Tour de France, you can do that with, you know, at the same exact time and see how it works. Um, that would never be possible, you know, in, in the real world.
0: Hmm. So in, in that mind, we don't need to get too deep on this, but, you know, if you were, you know, I, I'm a coach and I want to know more about training some athletes, you know, specifically for e-racing, you mentioned some of this stuff about not being able to read, but what would, you know, we're building towards that race. What would be the the key stuff that we needed to be specific about if, if e-racing was like a focus?
2: Um, a lot of it's going to be the start, the, the start of of an e-race is so ridiculously hard and so different than pretty much any kind of of in real world racing. The closest thing that anybody's really come up with is that it's like a cyclocross start, but it seems like it's worse in the sense that at least with cyclocross, you have some level of, you're, you're pinned and at full gas, but you have barriers and you have the other things that kind of bring skill into it. The, uh, the start of an e-race is this All out um, blitz, and it's you have to be at power the moment that the virtual flag drops, or there's no catching up. And it's it's that ability to maintain a really high effort level right from the beginning until the uh, until the race starts to break up into groups um, and make that selection. And that in itself is is a it's a trainable. Uh, intensity level, but it's not necessarily the same as your, I mean, you're going to train VO2 max and things like that for any short intermittent intensity event, Um, but training specifically for the start of a, of an e-ray seems to be the sort of the next uh, training adaptation for that's in terms of specificity.
0: Sure, sure. So that might be something as simple, like, would you go like almost like starts uh, or like sprints? Or would you be thinking more like an over under because there is no coasting where you're sort of like over, like really hard and then having to keep pedaling?
2: I think it's the, that you'd be trying to not only improve a person's powered VO2 max, but the time to improve the time to exhaustion. How long can somebody stay at a 90% or greater of VO2 max power? because it, the it seems as if the there's not much let up until there's a selection that people kind of say okay now now we can back off and, and ride we've we've jettisoned the biggest part of the of the peloton now we can back off slightly but you never really know how long that's going to be um, so being able right. to hold on to a really high power right from the get go is um, seems to have a, a big impact on because it's, it doesn't seem very um, catching up bridging a gap, et cetera in on e racing does not seem quite as doable or as viable an option as it is outdoors.
0: Hmm. So it's more in, akin to what we see in cyclocross or, or cross country Olympic where it's like, you have to be there like from the start or else yeah. you're not there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
2: And, and I think some of that too right is because about... it's a little bit difficult for people to figure out how to work together. The drafting right. the drafting is there, but it's not quite as efficient as when you can see somebody and go, okay, I'm in this slipstream or not. Um mm-hmm. and really be able to rotate and things like that. It's good it's there are that's going to be a skill um that people are gonna have and develop as they get more experienced in e racing. And I think that's also why you start to see um with the pros doing more team events indoors, they're beginning to train that specifically on how do we ride together? What do we actually do on a virtual environment to ride as a team?
0: Hmm. Interesting. So from there then, I wonder if we go to let's go to thinking about things like uh yeah why don't we cover this one so with joe we were talking about pedal stroke a bit and, and sort of the differences between indoors and outdoors so he i think did a pretty good job with that but the question that came up afterwards is 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 the indoor pedal stroke better because like it's it's sort of harder and drops your power in in a lot of people so what's your what's your thought on that? i don't know if there's a, a super correct answer but um how do you how do you hash that out that idea that it's like harder to make power indoors often for people?
2: Um, I think it's that the, the benefit of indoor from a pedaling standpoint is that it can reveal imbalances pretty quickly. So, um, riding outdoors when the, both the bike and you are swaying and there are so many other variables coming into play, it can be easy to just feel like you have a pretty smooth pedal stroke when you don't. Um, and it gets exposed a bit indoors when you start pedaling really fast on a bike that isn't going to move underneath you. And all of a sudden you're bouncing in the saddle, like you never did outdoors. Um, so I think that being that some of it works that way in the old days, we used to use, we used to do it on rollers and, and rollers really exposed any problems with your pedal stroke. It didn't mean that you were not powerful outdoors. It just meant that if there was a hitch in your pedal stroke somewhere, you may not have noticed it outdoors until you get indoors on rollers and all of a sudden you're bucking all over the place. Um, Now that gets back to the idea of, is the goal an absolute 50-50 division between your two legs and the smoothest pedal stroke? Same way as, you know, there's a debate, I think, in bike fit about should your, is it absolutely essential that everybody's knees track straight up and down or is it just a more natural pedal stroke for some people to have a little bit of a you know an in, inside outside kind of variation in their pedal strokes should we be training all of those idiosyncrasies out of everybody's pedaling or is that natural in the sense that none of us are truly symmetric to begin with
0: Mhm Yeah and I guess it begs the question of like why if I'm a mountain biker outside why has mountain biking not you know and and otherwise successful you know doing fine uh why would it not train my pedal stroke i guess is always the, that would be like the counter right would be like why have i not developed a suitable pedal stroke doing the thing right like i guess does that make
2: sense yeah i was waiting for the siren to go by <laughs> sorry <laughs> um yeah i mean historically um God, what was it you yeah, know the, the mountain bike Um, developed some of the better when you look at the clock diagrams and things like that of, of pedal stroke, um, their pedal strokes were some of the best because of the requirement to pull through the bottom and the benefit of pushing through the top. So they were um, in order to maintain, maintain traction. So they typically had a more, what we would, what a lot of people would refer to as a more complete pedal stroke to begin with. Um, The, um, you know the one of the things that you uh mentioned in the in an email to me was about one legged pedaling and the the benefit potentially to doing one legged pedaling indoors um is that you can start to see whether or not your legs really are equally strong and whether as you pedal normally you're actually putting more um you're making one leg work harder than the other inadvertently because, you know, it, it seems like you have one pedal stroke and that's your power. And in reality, it's, you know, more, your, your left leg is doing more work. And if you could get your right leg to do a little bit more than it's currently doing, it would alleviate some of the pressure on your left leg and just bring up your combined power, um, overall. Hmm. The is your feeling that
0: it's getting in regards to the trainer power being lower do you feel like with the newer smart trainers it's less of a difference uh, now that this flywheels are bigger you know I guess that inertial aspect is, is greater?
2: Yeah Does I think the sense? flywheel piece has been in existence long enough that that's um, the, the trainers have had large flywheels long enough that it's not so much that as <clears throat> I think that the Um, number one, the the technology of, of the apps and things like that have gotten better. I think people are just getting more accustomed to riding indoors. Um, the, that sensation of whether it's thermal strain or comfort or just getting used to being indoors when it used to be, I ride indoors 20 times a year and only when it's snowing outside. Yeah. Your indoor power is going to suffer because you're just not comfortable. Um, now that if you're riding three times a week indoors, or two times a week indoors and you've been doing it for the last six weeks or 20 weeks, um, you the, that, that difference between, um, what you can do indoors and outdoors is going to start to narrow be just from an experience standpoint.
0: Hmm. I think that makes sense. Uh, would you say like side to side difference, jumping back to that idea? Um, is is there like a threshold, do you think? Now that the power meters often will tell us the difference side to side, and certainly we could do the one-leg pedaling comparison. Like, is there a, a spot or, or a cutoff where you'd say that there's sort of like something needs to be done, you know, versus 49, 51, maybe you're okay? Like, at what at what point is it something that someone should really put some focus in and investigate?
2: Yeah, I would look at it as, like, if the if there's a significant discrepancy between the two where it seems that... um the your weaker leg is kind of is weak enough that it's holding you back. Um, then, and I don't exactly know what percentage that's going to be or whether it's a, if, if it's the same percentage for everyone. Um, but the, a, a, nor do I know whether it's always, um, sort of what the, what the cause is. I don't know if it's always going to be biomechanics or, mm. um, physiology, f- circulation, the, sure. you know, I don't know I, all of those things, but it would be, I think if you have someone personally, I think if you have someone who's at forty nine fifty one, and they're performing fine, um, the, the improvements that they could make in, in their own f- sort of fundamental training are going to outweigh any improvement they get by concentrating on, the, on closing that gap, it's this—it's that old idea of of um, marginal gains, where you're chasing a marginal gain and forgetting that you can improve your your power at lactate threshold by fifteen percent. So you give up, you know, the 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 big gain of that comes from boring fundamental training in pursuit of something that might give you a a, a very small improvement somewhere. Now, if you've maxed out all of the other improvements, if you're really searching for that last half a percent, then by all means go for it. But the the absolute by far majority of anybody out there has so much more to gain in basic physiology and fitness that the marginal gains components are mostly a waste of their effort.
0: I like that, and I like that you tied in like how are you doing otherwise, right? Because sometimes it's like we go we go and try and chase this one leg pedaling and forget like as you say the the ninety nine percent of the stuff we could do that really works if you
2: just do it. Yeah, Um, Yeah, well, some so one of the things that I think is really beneficial about in in the grand scheme of things of indoor cycling is we're seeing and we saw it especially in the pandemic. Indoor cycling is giving people an opportunity to get more miles or more hours per month than they did before. And if you add that up over the course of a year, the training workload that they're producing or accumulating is greater than it was before. And as a coach, you know that the best thing we can do for people is to get them to train consistently, we can get them to miss fewer workouts. And if indoor cycling is making, and, and especially with the apps and the technology and the engagement that those, uh, the, that those components are, are providing, if that gets somebody on the bike two times a more per week or per month, or they're putting in four more hours per month, that makes a difference over time. And we're, and in some senses, um, one of the big pushes in my, for my whole career has been. How do we get people who would otherwise have dropped out of the cycling community or the endurance athlete community because they got busy doing everything else? How do we keep them engaged and how do we make it so that every ride doesn't suck? And when you're not fit and you're and you're struggling every ride, it just isn't any fun anymore. So people stop going to group rides. They stop doing e-races. They stop doing any of these things because they don't want to be dropped. So indoor cycling is allowing people, as you said, like the person who rides at 530 in the morning they can't do that outdoors but they can do it indoors so now they're getting enough training and enough workload that they feel good when they get to ride with people and that encourages them to ride with people and stay in the community and stay in the uh in in that uh maintain that identity of I am an athlete or I am a cyclist
0: yeah it's almost like a a new twist in some ways to your the time crunch cyclist right like you're you're almost going to have to redo that book now
2: yeah exactly
0: uh, put in a bit more about indoor too um, and I think you're exactly right. There's so many things that it can do. The weather was the original, but I have one client that, you know, is getting for the exact reason you said, like you're getting back into it and, and they have say knee pain or back pain and they can't, they're not sure when the ride's going to end or should end right from a therapy perspective. Mm-hmm. But indoors, they can just get off, right? And right. so everything, it's more positive, right? It's like, it's not like I had to walk home or call for it. It's <laughs> like, you know, I did the thing I was supposed to do, stress it appropriately. Yeah. Um, you know, just like you would with a band exercise for your shoulder injury, right? It, it just, it opens up so many options uh, when you're getting yeah. started for therapy, for, for training.
2: Absolutely. And then you look at the people who, uh, you know, I hate to say that there are a lot of people who stop riding on the road because they just don't feel safe. And they, if you're, they are able to train indoors and feel safe and feel, um, like they're not going to get hurt and then have the fitness then to go to an event where they are going to feel safe. Say it's a, an organized event that has some traffic control and things like that, where they, they do feel safe in that environment. Um, now they're, they're well-trained for that and didn't have to kind of force themselves into a position they were uncomfortable with on their own. Or you end up with the people who say, you know, I'm, I'm going to go over to Europe and ride the Alps, but I live in Kansas. So, you know, how do I train on long on climbs that are going to take me an hour? Indoors, you can do that. Or the triathlete who's training for, for Kona and lives in a relatively urban area. How are you going to get this the steadiness of uh, a four or five, six hour, um, you know, uh, cycling leg? Not that I think that they're going to do a lot of race day simulations necessarily that are that long, but even so, how do you get the 30 minute, that 30 minute steady state, that 30 minute um, time trial pace kind of workout done when you have traffic lights and, and uh, either traffic lights where you have big hills where you live. Joe, for instance, um, Joe lives in Sedona, Arizona. He can't find a 10 kilometer stretch of flat road unless he goes down the valley. Um, but indoors, you can do that.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And for some people that is the only way to get that nice steady, you know, we probably all would agree that, you know, endurance should be relatively steady, keep the load on the legs. And and as you say, for some people due to terrain or traffic, it's, it's not possible. So it's uh, something that especially now that it's, it's reasonable to ride indoors year round, right? Like I think that's when I started cycling, it wasn't something you would do, right? Like you wouldn't get on your rollers when it was nice outside.
2: Yeah. People would look at it. I mean, even the cyclists would look at you like you were crazy.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Uh, okay. So we're getting here towards the end. I, I think maybe the one thing, do you have any, you know, obviously the apps help with the motivation and it's boring indoors. Cause I think that's, we could all talk about this, this Rosie, it's great. It's a great tool, but it is boring and yeah. isolating in a lot of ways like what are what are your tips as far as making it more enjoyable we talked about heating which i think is number one mm-hmm. uh, or, or cooling i should say is there anything else obvious that people are missing uh as
2: far as just making it not so unenjoyable boring um i think the 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 interactive apps that allow for group rides and e-races and things like that um, provide a level of accountability it's the same um kind of there's somebody waiting for me at the coffee shop, therefore I'm going to get on the bike. So that socialization of there's somebody there that I'm going to ride with helps. Um, And the ability then to communicate, whether it's through discord or some other uh, audio or even video streaming to connect everybody, that's helpful. I think to the, you know, so one of the things that I think is important is that is the use case idea where. if you are looking at indoor cycling for what am I, what's my goal here and what am I trying to get out of it? There are times when reducing the stimuli, reducing the, um, you know, not using ergometer mode, not having any connections um, can be good. So one of the problems that people run into with ergometer mode, for instance, is that there's a difference between keeping up with a, with a resistance of 400 Watts for five minutes and having the internal motivation to produce 400 Watts for five minutes. And some, you know, when, when people say, Oh, you know, there's no use for a, for a dumb trainer anymore. Um, I, some, sometimes disagree. Number one, not everybody can afford the new stuff. And number two, um, for, for shutting out all of the distractions and making somebody really focus on the effort and focus on what they're doing. Um, there are some people who are too easily distracted by everything else and, and need that isolation, um, or there's a time for that isolation and there's a time for the social, you know, uh, components. So I don't know that I would would look at it as it has to be an all or nothing, or that there's one specific way of training indoors that's right for every use case and for every person. If you're fortunate enough to have the ability to change the environment, um, some really focused interval work could be good to do when there is no connection to anything outside your living room or your basement. And then there are other times when uh, the social accountability or the socialization or other things may make it beneficial to have the, to use the interactive apps. So it's, um, I don't think, I think we have to be careful to not pigeonhole everybody into thinking that there's, there's one best way or one best setup that is going to be the best for all use cases and all people.
0: Yeah. I think that variation is a great, great idea. Right. And and I came from the world of, you know, sit in the basement on Christmas morning, you know, four hours staring at the wall, no music, you know, just keeping it uh, very hard. You benefited
2: I, from that in some ways. You know? I, I think so mentally.
0: Right? right. Like if you talk about Kona on your own, you know, it's overwhelming, hot, you know, no music on the course that, like that is the event or the challenge for some people. Yeah, um, but it's not the challenge for, as you've said very reasonably, it's not the challenge for a lot of people, uh, or at least in the near future. And we are thinking about co- consistency, so we want to use all all the tools, right? All the stimuli.
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: Perfect. Well, I think that's a a great note, uh, Jim, to end on. Did you want to leave us with just sort of where people can find you uh, on the inter- internets and uh, and so forth?
2: Sure. Um, I can contact me at, at, on Twitter at jrudberg. Um, The book is available from the book uh, "Ride inside is available on, on Velopress website. And if you use the um, code "Ride inside it, the from Velopress website, there's a 15% discount on the book. It's also available at local bookstores, Amazon, et cetera. Um, And uh, Joe is, is on um, Twitter as well. uh, Jay Friel and yeah, we hope everyone enjoys the book. Awesome.
0: Well, I think it's been a great help to a lot of listeners already, but hopefully getting you on as well has gotten sort of a couple of the follow-up questions answered. And uh, we'd love to have you and or Joe back again, uh, if anyone has more, more questions about how to ride inside. Absolutely. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much for tuning into the consummate athlete podcast. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our past episodes, please do us a huge favor, leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps us bring on, you know, great new guests and yeah, we'd also love to hear from you. You can find us on the interwebs, um, at consummateathlete.com at consummateathlete on Instagram. Uh, and I am at Molly J. Herford on Instagram and Twitter. And Peter is at Peter Glassford. Thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next week.
0: Searching for the stories outside of cycling, but still inside cycling. The Gravel Lot is a weekly interview series where we talk about our shared experiences in the cycling community and talk with people that we think you guys might be interested in. Absolutely, and The Gravel Lot is actually not always about gravel, but it is the place that is your local trailhead. It could be the meet-up parking lot where you meet your friends. Or the post-ride watering hole. It's really the place where you sit down, share your stories, and talk about life. Yeah, and dive into the things that really matter to you on Two Wheels or beyond. The Gravelot has brand new episodes every single Thursday morning, along with a bi-weekly editorial column every other Tuesday. So check out the show, check out the Beeline, and join the conversation and find out all you need to know about the Gravelot at thegravelot.com.